0: The first passage, Psalm 50, verses 1 through 15. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble— I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. The second passage, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2, on page 1830. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray once more. Father, thank you for your word, and we do ask now that your spirit will give us illumination, to give us understanding, and to give us hearts that are ready to receive whatever you have to say to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the start of every new year, there's always talk about new resolutions. Resolutions that typically have to do with our habits. We're usually trying to break bad habits and form some healthier ones. So we make these resolutions, right? Resolutions to cut carbs, cut out sweets from our diet, eat better, work out more often, watch Netflix less, read some more books, especially the Bible. But as we've learned through years of annual failure, building these new habits is really, really hard. It doesn't take long for our resolutions to just simply fall by the wayside. This one New York Times article I read this week says that by January 8th, that's tomorrow, folks, 25% 25% of resolutions have already failed. And by year's end, fewer than 10% have been kept. Now, this contributor, he's a psychology professor, he says that his studies show that the reason why we fail uh, to, to break bad habits and to form new ones is because we rely too much on what he says is, is rational analysis and sheer willpower in order to control our impulses. In other words, we, we know that this habit is so much better than what we've been doing and so much healthier, and we try to force ourselves to make a change, but that change never seems to last. Now, Why is that? Well, according to this secular psychologist, it's because we don't know how self-control works. We tend, he says, to ignore the evolutionary tools that we've inherited called social emotions. He specifically identifies the emotions of gratitude and compassion as necessary for building these new habits. He writes this, for years I've been studying the effects of these emotions on decision-making and behavior and I've found that unlike reason and willpower, they, these social emotions, naturally incline us to be patient and to persevere. And he goes on to argue that by cultivating the emotions of gratitude and compassion, We're better equipped to delay gratification and to maintain new resolutions, even though they may be hard and they may offer little short-term gain. Now, of course, he's coming from the perspective of evolutionary science, and so from a Christian worldview, we'd say that he's missing a huge piece of the puzzle. But I think we should at least acknowledge that this psychology professor does recognize a profound biblical truth. That if you want to make a change, you want to keep a resolution, if you want to pick up a new habit or discipline, just convincing yourself with good reasons and exerting your willpower to make a change, yeah, it might produce a a flash in the pan, but it's not going to last. There's no lasting change until the emotions, or if you prefer, call it virtues, the virtues of gratitude In compassion, until they are engaged, only then will deliberate habits eventually become second nature to us. Now, I found that to be a very timely article uh, because as a staff, we've been reading this book by uh, James uh, K.A. Smith called, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And Smith's basic premise is that we are not just thinking beings. We're feeling beings. And so that means you can't just think your way into spiritual maturity. Just learning the Bible, just memorizing verses, studying theology, they're helpful, but they are not enough for one's spiritual formation. You aren't what you think. Just Thinking biblically won't do. He argues that you are what you love. It's about learning to love biblically. It's about learning to love and desire the things that we are told to love and desire in the scriptures. That's the path to spiritual maturity. And so I think Smith would agree with with the psychologist that if you want to form new habits, if you want to keep those resolutions, then you've got to engage The heart. You have to engage emotions like gratitude and compassion. But Smith would also argue that there is this back and forth, a back and forth between your heart and your habits. To solidify a habit, you've got to engage the heart. But to engage the heart, you've got to intentionally pick up a habit. Smith argues that there's, there's actually a spiritual power. There's an affective, a heart-shaping power in our habits, in our spiritual practices and disciplines. If if you keep something deliberately, you keep doing something deliberately, if you form a habit, it eventually affects your desires. So for example, when I gave up the habit of drinking uh, sodas, And and juices or of sweetening my coffee and I just stuck with pure water I stuck with black coffee I admit it was hard at first because my mind said yeah this is good for you but my desires they crave something far sweeter but as I just pressed on as, as I kept up this healthy habit one day I remember just opening up a can of coke and just taking a sip and I just I just couldn't do it. it. was just too sweet for me. I, I, adding sugar to my coffee was just unbearable. I, it, eventually, I, I just, I couldn't even finish these things. So what was happening was that this habit I was forming, that was intentional at first, eventually just becoming just part of what I, what I did, it had a formative effect, a formative effect on my tastes and my desires. It changed what I love. Now, that's just an example on the level of appetites. But as we're going to see, there, there's this reciprocity between our heart and our habits that also occurs in the level of spirituality. And I think it's very relevant for us to talk about this today because, as you all just experienced, we introduced a new practice within our worship service. Today is the first time that we've included an offertory in our order of service. Because in the past, we've, we've asked members to drop their gifts in an offering box in the back as they leave the service or just, you know, at their own leisure. And we're thankful to God, that for, for, we're thankful to him for always moving our members to give generously, even though we don't collect an offering like most churches. But one challenge that we face has been the difficulty of expressing our act of giving as an act of worship. You see, when it's not included as an integral element in the church's corporate worship, then it's tempting to simply treat giving as a pragmatic duty of church members. It's seen as a necessary duty for, for meeting the financial needs of the church. And that's, that's a good thing, a, a good attitude. And, and, now we've, and now that we've recently introduced as well an online giving option, and we've allowed for members to set up automated automatic bank drafts, the act of giving is going to be even further separated from corporate worship. And for some, it's no longer a conscious act. It's automatically withdrawn on the first of the month, along with the mortgage and the credit card bills. Now, don't get me wrong here, though. Please hear me. I don't want anyone to feel bad for utilizing online are automated ways of giving. I, I realize that's the trend, especially the, the younger you go. I know some of you college students, you probably don't even own checkbooks. So I understand that, 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 that this is, this is where, where we're going, not just us, but many churches. But to counteract this trend, we'd like to introduce an offertory as a way to remind us all that giving is not merely a duty. Giving is worship. It's a way to praise God. It's a way to make God look great. But of course, once you introduce a new practice like an offertory, it's important that the church explains our intent, that we explain and and affirm the need for a right heart in carrying out this practice. So we're hoping here to develop in all of our church members a healthy habit of corporate and conscientious giving, and so we've got to make sure that our motives are pure and that they're biblical. It's so important, and so that's my aim this morning, and what we're going to do is start by looking at Psalm 50, and we're going to look at three things that a humble heart acknowledges about giving, and then we're going to see what a healthy habit of giving uh, uh, looks like in in terms of four healthy practices uh, that come out of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, So let's begin by looking at Psalm 50 verses one to 15. And again here, I want to affirm the right heart behind our acts of giving, especially our public acts of giving. I know for those of us who have been Christians long enough, we we know how easy it is for a healthy spiritual habit to eventually turn into a mindless, heartless routine where we just are simply going through the motions. And the Bible clearly identifies something like that as hypocrisy and warns us against that plenty of times. And Psalm 50 is one of those warnings. It begins really with this imagery of a trial, a courtroom trial, and, and God is summoning the heavens and the earth uh, to gather forth and to be his witnesses as he judges and the people he's judging are his own people, his covenant people. In verses 7 to 15 in particular, he rebukes them for their, their lack of true gratitude when they offer their sacrifices to him. In verse 8, God makes it clear that he's not rebuking them for a lack of sacrifices. Look, look at verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. And so they were dutifully giving to the Lord, and they were doing it on a continual basis. So they weren't being rebuked for failing to give, but for failing to have the right heart when they gave. They were mistaken. They were mistaken to to think that the sacrifices that they gave to God were somehow essential to him, that they were indispensable to him, and therefore they assume that by giving, they gain some degree of leverage on God. And so what God does is to remind us of what we often fail to understand about our giving to him. And there are three things here, three things to acknowledge if you want a right heart in giving. If you want to follow along, you look in your and there's an outline listing those three things first the first thing we have to acknowledge if we want a right heart in our giving is to acknowledge that you have nothing to give god that doesn't already belong to him when you give god an offering what you're doing is giving back what is rightfully his notice how the lord how the lord stresses the word mine Three times in this text, he's talking about what's his, my, let me, let me just read to you verses 9 to 11. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Everything belongs to the Lord. And look there at verse 12, at the end of verse 12. For the world and its fullness are mine. So no matter what you offer to the Lord, you're just giving back what already belongs to him that he had entrusted to you. I'm sure all of us have probably this one friend or one family member that you find it so hard to shop for. You, you, you didn't know what to get them for Christmas because you're thinking, man, they already have everything, right? They, they, they already have all the latest gadgets. They have all the latest games and accessories. They have, they have all the clothes and shoes that they need. So w- what do you get someone who already has everything? But what you do is you give them something from the heart, right? You, you, you make something for them. You you write them a card or, or better, yeah, you, you actually write out a letter and you, you send it to them through the actual mail, right? I mean, just you do something that's, that's from the heart. And whatever you, whatever you end up giving probably has little monetary value, but it has, and it's full of, of, of sentimental heart value. So just think about God here. What do you give to a God who literally has everything? What do you offer a God who literally owns everything in your possession? You give him something from the heart. What matters to him is not the monetary value, but it's the sentimental value. Because nothing that you give him in itself is going to impress him. I mean, these Israelites are, are, are bringing, you know, the, you know, their goats to the Lord. Oh, Lord, here is my precious goat that I offer to you. Oh, only to you, oh, Lord. And, and God's like, oh, yeah, goat. Great. Yeah, thanks. I got a thousand of those on the hill over there. But, you know, hey, you know, thank you for that goat. The goat itself is not what's going to impress God. It's the heart. Behind the goat The heart behind the gift that is going to please him. My daughter did this really cute thing this past Christmas. for, for weeks in advance, she went around the house finding you know random items to gift, wrap and, and, and to give to us. And on, on Christmas Day, I, I find myself opening a bunch of these, of these little gifts, and it's it's like my spare keychain, chain, um, my my old flashlight, you know, things like that. And it's all my stuff. It it, it all belongs to me. But the love inherent in in the whole process of her choosing and, and wrapping up these little gifts so that she herself could give to mommy and daddy her own gift on Christmas Day, that just means the world to me. And I think that's how God views your offering. The money was already his. He's he's thankful for the gift, but it's you and your heart that he loves. And so when you give to God like a child giving to her father what already belongs to him, he's pleased. He's greatly honored by that. So friends, that's the first acknowledgement that, that we have to have If we want a right heart of giving. The second thing we need to acknowledge is that since God has no needs, your gifts are not to his benefit. The mistake that the Israelites were making was was, was adopting these very pagan views of God. They thought God somehow fed on these sacrifices of bulls and goats. I know it sounds ridiculous to us, but that was what was assumed in those days with these pagan sacrifices, God makes it clear that he has no hunger. He has no need for sacrifices. Look at verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God doesn't need food. He doesn't need sacrifices. They're of no benefit to him. Because he's a God who has no needs. He's perfectly content within himself. He is completely self-sufficient. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say as he introduced, uh, to the, Lord, uh, introduced the Lord to the Athenians. In, in their pantheon of gods, they called the Lord uh, the unknown God. They didn't know his name. They didn't know anything about him. And so Paul explains in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 25, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So unlike false gods, the Lord does not need us to serve him he doesn't need anything paul says yes we we do use our hands to worship god but it's by just simply lifting them up in praise and thanksgiving we're not using our hands to supply god's needs as if he had any we're the ones really that have needs and and god's the one who, who's filling them up with with life and breath and everything So the point is, is that God is not trying to use you or to manipulate you for some kind of selfish gain, for for some kind of personal uh, agenda. And frankly, it's because he doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. I I know that sounds harsh, but friends, the truth is, is that you'll, you'll only be truly loved By a God who doesn't need you. You will only be truly loved by a God who has no needs. You see, the false gods of this world, they're only kind to you. They're only benevolent towards you because they need something from you. They're missing something. And so they're trying to satisfy that something through you. Wanting you to bring that. You to offer that. They're using you for their own benefit. But because the Lord has no needs, because our offerings are not to his benefit, he's able, he is the only one who is able to freely love you with true benevolence, with pure kindness. It's only to a God like that, only to a God like that, can we give an offering with our whole heart, knowing we're not being used We are not being manipulated. We are being loved. Now, all of this leads to the third thing you really need to acknowledge. The third thing is, is that if God has no needs, and if all things already belong to him, then your act of giving, it does not put God in your debt. You don't give to God with the expectation that he must return the favor in kind. Because no matter how much you give him, he still owes you nothing. You give God money, it was already his. You give him your service using your gifts and talents, where do you think you got those? You give him your obedience, you are merely doing your duty. The fact of the matter is, God owes us nothing, but we owe him everything. And for our failure to, to, to give him our everything, to give him our whole hearts, we have a debt. God's not in debt to us. We are in debt to him. It's a debt that we cannot pay, a debt that demands eternal punishment. But friends, the good news, the good news is that the one who owes you nothing, who could never be put in your debt he has paid the debt of your sin by sending his son to die on a cross in your place. The one who is not obligated to give you anything has graciously given you the assurance of his love and salvation by raising his son from the dead. And now this This mighty one, he is calling you to turn from your sins and to receive his grace by by calling out to him, calling upon him for deliverance. Just look at what he says in verses 14 to 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me so apparently apparently th- the humble prayer for help from a desperate worshipper apparently that smells sweeter to god than the aroma of a thousand sacrificed bulls nothing pleases and glorifies him more than a cry of faith coming from those who recognize their need of deliverance and who turn to him and him alone. And for those of us who have been delivered, those of us here who, who know his salvation, we are called to return to God regularly to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving as a way to express that very same cry of help, that same cry for deliverance. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish as we're introducing this new offertory. Friends, every time we take up an offering, we want to glorify God with hearts that are grateful for his salvation. We want to demonstrate that we love and we trust the Lord far more than we do our money. We want our giving to make God look great. We want our giving to be a true act of worship. And at the same time, at the same time, we believe our giving can also be an act of spiritual formation. Because while while it doesn't do God any good, giving does us good. There's a spiritual good that we receive when we develop the habit of giving regularly to God. Because in time, in time, it engages our hearts, and it shapes us to be more generous and compassionate people. And so that's, that's the reason why we want to build this healthy habit together as a church, this habit of giving gifts to God in the course of our corporate worship. It's for God's glory and for our good. Now, what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time is to go and look at that 1 Corinthians 16 passage and to consider four marks of a healthy habit of giving. So, if you can, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 2. Here, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's instructing them on how they ought to give to the relief efforts that were being directed towards the saints who were in Jerusalem. He says in verse 1 now concerning the collection for the saints as i directed the church of galatia so also are you uh, so you also are to do on the first day of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when i come now some have wondered if perhaps the putting something aside and storing it up was to be handled privately do it by yourself in the privacy of your own home because if that were the case then this passage has nothing to do with an offertory It has nothing to do with a public offering in a worship service but i doubt that to be the case i doubt that this putting something aside was to be done privately otherwise it would make no sense of what paul says at the end of verse 2 because he wants the putting aside and the storing up to be conducted in such a way so that when he arrives, he doesn't have to make another appeal and to go around collecting from everyone's private stash. So I think the putting aside and storing up was likely centralized in the church. There there must have been some sort of, you know, proto-church treasury being formed here. Now, given that assumption, there are four practices in this public act of giving for us to consider. First, notice how their giving was to be periodic. Paul says that this putting aside should take place on the first day of every week. So every Sunday, when the early Christians gathered as the church, this putting aside was to occur. Because Paul doesn't doesn't want their giving to be sporadic. He wants it to be every week. And he, he hopes to avoid that situation where they only give when he or some other apostle shows up with an appeal. So that's why taking from this biblical example, the majority of churches throughout history have taken up an offering in their corporate worship every Sunday, every first day of the week. Second, we see that this public giving was to be planned. It's periodic and it's also planned. Paul says, each of you, each of you. So he is is expecting every Corinthian Christian, every believer to receive this instruction and to thoughtfully participate by putting something aside every week. I I should stress here that there was no expectation for non-Christians who happened to be visiting to give, he is speaking to believers here, and, and we feel the same way. And as we said earlier, that in our offertory, it's not an obligation at all. We have no expectations for visitors, for, for, for non-Christians who are in our presence. These are instructions for believers. We believe an offertory is going to help our Christians to fulfill these instructions to to have their giving be both excuse me periodic and planned and so even if even if you do end up taking advantage of some of those online giving options that 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 we're making available I I still encourage you to to plan out and to prepare something to put aside each Sunday when the offertory occurs so here's just the suggestion that I want to offer to you it's, it's not a command from Scripture. This is just a suggestion. Let's say, let's say that the bulk of your giving happens electronically. That's fine. That, like I said, that's totally fine. But what if you deducted $52 from your planned annual giving and you thoughtfully prepare yourself to give a dollar each week as a token of your normal offering? Or if you'd like, just times that by 5 or by 10 or by 20. You know, it's really not about the amount. It's about actively participating. In our previous church uh, that, 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 we, that, I, that me and my wife used to be a part of, we used to write a monthly check and drop it in the offering plate once a month. But eventually, my wife and I got convicted to prepare 52 checks in the beginning of the year so that we could actually participate in the corporate act of giving every Sunday. And I think it was good for us. It was good for our souls. If your, if your habits, if they have formative power to engage and to shape your heart, then building up a habit of weekly giving is going to do you some spiritual good. Just as we believe that it'll do you more spiritual good to participate in worship singing, to actually sing versus just standing there, or, or to engage as you listen to a sermon versus just doodling, or, or, or to actually take part in the Lord's communion, the Lord's supper versus just observing. We believe as well that it will do you spiritual good to have something prepared each week to give to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Even if your habit, even if your habit that you build involves you just getting on your phone during the offertory and giving you electronically, hey, that's fine. I'd say that's just a good example of a modern-day application of this ancient biblical practice found in 1 Corinthians, where the giving was periodic every week and planned. It was thoughtful. Third thing. The third thing it says about our giving is that it ought to be proportionate. Paul says, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. The point is that we give according to our means. And if God... Graciously causes us to prosper and our financial means increase, well, then we increase what we put aside proportionately. I think that's what Paul means. And so th- that's why when we think about giving to God, it's not helpful to think strictly in terms of a tithe to think strictly in terms of 10% of your income. I think that's a good starting point for believers if you want to pick up this this practice, this habit. But if we focus too much on 10%, then we start thinking to ourselves that 10% of my income belongs to God, which, okay, I'm willing to part with, but then the rest is mine for my own use, however I see fit. But God is saying, no, it's all mine. All that you have is mine. All your finances belong to him. All of it should be used in a way that honors and glorifies him. And a portion of it, a portion, whether it be 10% or more, as we may prosper, we give to God and to the work that he's doing through local churches, particularly the one that you've joined as a member. Now, that's what we, so we encourage to think in, in these terms, in terms of your giving to be proportionate as God uh, blesses you. Now, there's a fourth mark of a healthy habit of giving, and that's where the giving is plentiful. Notice how Paul assumes that they'll put aside store up enough so that when he arrives, there will be plenty, plenty available for uh, the, the, the relief of the saints. Later on in his second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 3, Paul encourages them again in that place to be plentiful in their giving. And he does so by pointing to the churches in Macedonia as an example. Because they gave, he says, according to their means. Paul goes on to say that they gave even beyond their means, of their own accord, They themselves were under severe affliction. They were in extreme poverty, and yet they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. He says that they were actually begging him. They were begging earnestly for the chance to give more. Now, to call their practice of giving a habit, I I, I don't think it does justice. It's more like, for them, a passion. So where did that come from? Where did they get that passion for giving? Well, Paul goes on to explain that this kind of kind of passionate giving is really an expression of genuine Christian love. Love that is rooted in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he writes in second 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by so that you By his poverty, might become rich. So I hope you realize by now, this is not about the money. I know that's the biggest concern with offeratories, that the church might give this impression that it's all about the money, it's about collecting more of your money. But I want to be clear that at HCC, it's about the gospel. It's about our worshipful response to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, our Lord who, by his poverty, has made us eternally rich in his heavenly inheritance. And so we want to build up, we want to build in all believers who worship with us, we want to build a healthy habit of giving that's periodic, planned, proportionate, and plentiful. All as a way to glorify the Son of God and to become more like Him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this chance to hear from your word, to be convicted, to be encouraged by your word. We pray, Lord, that we allow your truth to shape our thinking, our feeling, and our practices. And Lord, we want everything we do, especially in this worship service, to be directed towards your glory, making you look great. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.